And I thought, well, that's easy, isn't it? Because we all know that story. It's the same every year. We had a bit of joke about that. It doesn't change, does it? But actually, when I came down to preparing for it, it was really interesting reading the accounts in the Bible really carefully compared to what we think is the Jesus story. And I realized just how much we've added to that, that there's nothing in the Bible about Mary arriving on a donkey. There's nothing in the Bible about them only getting there just in time, like we saw in the film. It doesn't say that. And definitely on the film, I'm sure they weren't white or British. The shepherds didn't see a star. There's definitely nothing in the Bible about tinsel or turkey or Christmas trees. I love them. They're great, but they're not actually part of the story. So what are the facts? Well, the New Testament starts with four gospel accounts, which are the, tell us about Jesus' life. But actually, only two of them mention Jesus' arrival into the world, and those are Matthew and Luke. They tell us some different things, but fortunately, they don't contradict each other. So that's great. So Luke's gospel starts by telling us about this lady here, who we can probably all recognize as Mary. I think we've got a Mary somewhere. There we go. There's our Mary. And an angel appeared to Mary. Here she is. And she said, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You are going to have a son and give him the name Jesus. He will be great and be called the Son of the Most High. Isn't that an amazing promise? Whereas Matthew's gospel also starts with an angel. Well, the gospel doesn't, but the story of Jesus does. But this angel comes and speaks to Joseph. And Joseph was going to marry Mary, but when he found out she was going to have a baby, he was just a little bit worried about all of this. But the angel came to Joseph and said, Joseph, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, which he did. Now, they also agree that the two of them traveled to Bethlehem before Jesus was born because there was going to be a census where they needed to be counted. And that when they arrived in Bethlehem, Mary did indeed give birth to the baby. Here he is. Here's our little baby. Have we got any babies? We've got a, Mary's got a baby. That's good, isn't it? So here's our baby. And that the baby was wrapped in cloths and laid in a manger because there was no room for them inside. So here they are. There's our baby with Mary and Joseph to look after them, after him there. And then Luke tells us about these chaps here who were the shepherds. Here they are looking after their sheep. That they were out in the field. Oh, the sheep are a bit tired. Looking after their sheep. When an angel, another angel, came to them. And this angel said, Do not be afraid. They keep repeating that, don't they? That he brought great news of good, good news of great joy for all the people. And that they were told they would find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. 
which is exactly what they did. And they were so excited. They went out and told others and they praised and glorified God. Whereas in Matthew's gospel, he doesn't tell us anything about shepherds, but he does tell us about these chaps. These are the wise men or the magi. Now, we don't know if there were three. We always think there were because there were three gifts, but there could have been ten. We really don't know. But here they are, our three wise men. Now, they saw a new star appear in the sky, and that was how they knew that the new king of the Jews had been born. And they were guided by that star until it came to rest above the place where Jesus was. And they knew that they had found the right child. So in our Christmas story, there is no tinsel, but there are angels, there's a manger, there are shepherds, there are wise men, there's a star, all that good stuff is there, and it is a truly wonderful story. Okay, so we're thinking this morning about the Christmas story, and we've been presenting this um, story, this account of the birth of Jesus to you as fact. But how can we know for sure that it really is fact, and that it's not just fairy tale? Now, this morning, I brought along this book, The Children's Treasury, and inside it says it was given to Dan when he was seven years old. But it's got stories in there that I read as a child as well. And I'm going to read the opening line of three of those stories to you. So this first one is Rapunzel. And it says, once upon a time, there lived a man and his wife. And the next one is Aladdin and the wonderful lamp. And that says, there once lived a poor tailor who had a son called Aladdin. And finally... Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. It was in the middle of winter when the broad flakes of snow were falling all around that a certain queen sat working at a window. Now I've left you in suspense, haven't I? I know you want to know how those stories end, but you're going to have to find that out later. It's wonderful to read from books like this, isn't it? But my all-time favourite book is this one, which is the Bible. And in it we find... Um, the accounts of the birth of Jesus in the New Testament. And here's how two sections of the Gospel of Luke, which which contains the story, begin. So there's the beginning of the other ones. And here we have Luke 1, verse 5. In the time of King Herod of Judea. And a second introduction. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. There's an obvious difference between the opening lines of of the fairy tales and the ones of Luke. Maybe you've spotted it. It's that the fairy tales there, they don't place it in a particular time in history. It's just once upon a time because those events never actually happened. They were fairy tales. But the accounts of the birth of Jesus are placed in real time in history. We know that King Herod existed, and we know that Caesar Augustus issued a census of the entire Roman world. But despite that, many people still think that the Christmas story is simply a fairy tale. After all, aren't angels um, appearing and a virgin birth, aren't they all just make-believe things? 
And anyway, the author of Rapunzel could just as easily have said something like, in the days of Henry VIII, a man and a woman lived. And that wouldn't make it automatically a real-life story, would it? But the writers of fairy tales, they never claim that their stories are true. They want us to be absorbed into the world of make-believe. But the writers of the Bible, in contrast, do want us to believe that their stories that they are telling are true. Here's how Luke begins his gospel just before he tells us the Christmas story. He says, Since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Luke wants his readers to have absolute certainty that what he has written is the truth. And so he carefully investigated everything that had happened from when Jesus was alive. Actually, he he hung out with Jesus' closest friends and family. So he gained eyewitness accounts, and it's likely that he could have interviewed Mary herself. So the question is, how historically reliable then are the documents in the New Testament, such as Luke's Gospel? And we don't usually have originals of the documents of any historical, um, of any historical account that we use. But two questions that we should ask are, are there copies? And if there are copies or fragments of copies, how soon after the original were they written? And then how many copies do we have? So here's a little quick quiz for you. A question here about the New Testament. So, first question: How many years after? How many years are there between the original of the New Testament and the first copy or fragment of a copy? Twenty-five to fifty years, two hundred and ten to two hundred and sixty years, or eight hundred to eight hundred and fifty years? So, hands up if you think twenty-five to fifty years. A few hands there. Ten. That's all. Oh, 210 to 260 years. Who thinks that? A few hands there as well. 800 to 850. Who thinks that? Oh, no hands there. Well, it is actually 25 to 50 years, so well done. Um, and how many ancient copies do we have, like fragments or copies of the Old Testament? 10, 200, or 24,000? So who thinks 10? We have a couple of hands in the room for 10. What, what do you think? 10 or 11, okay, so we're thinking 10 or 11 down here. Who thinks 200? A few more hands for 200. Over there as well. Who thinks 24,000? Okay, most hands for 24,000, and you are correct there. Okay, so compare these answers with two other um, historical works that we, we claim that we would use and accept as factual history. I'm not going to read them out, but when you compare the numbers, the reliability of the New Testament is absolutely staggering. No other historical work comes even close to the reliability of the New Testament. And it's in that very reliable New Testament that we find accounts of angels appearing and that miraculous virgin birth of Jesus. And just to give the the truth of the story even more weight, God actually promised that this would happen through the prophet Isaiah 700 years before the events actually took place. We find it in the Old Testament where the prophet Isaiah, God speaking through the prophet, said, The Lord himself will give you a sign. 
The virgin is going to have a baby. She will give birth to a son and he will be called Emmanuel. How do you explain such an accurate prophecy other than that this was really a promise from God that actually went on to take place 700 years later? And it says that that child will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. God was promising to send his son, who is himself God. We'll hear a bit more of why he sent Jesus later. But for now, let's say we can be sure that the miraculous events of the birth of Jesus actually took place, and we have reliable evidence that this really, really happened. So we're now going to listen to a song performed to us, which is about Emmanuel, Jesus Christ, our God with us who came at Christmas. answering questions earlier. So let's have a quick recap. We've looked at what the Jesus Christmas story is, what the Bible says about the birth of Jesus. We've considered the evidence that it's real. So what? So what? What difference does it make to you or to me? And that's the question we're going to begin answering now as we explore the relevance of Jesus' birth. Now this week I was introduced to a quiz show on television by someone who perhaps I'll remain nameless because I don't want to embarrass John and Mary, but I was introduced to a quiz show on television this week called Only Connect. Anyone seen Only Connect? Oh, a couple of people. Okay, that's good. No one knows what I'm talking about. Well, that's fine. Um, It's apparently really hard. That's what John told me, but I sort of got the answer to three questions on my first kind of showing, so it can't be that difficult. The BBC website for the show describes it like this. It's a quiz show in which connections must be made between apparently unconnected things where patience and lateral thinking are as vital as knowledge. Well, I've made up a strikingly similar game called Christmas Connect, just for Portswood. And we've got one round today, and it's a connections round. And so John could tell you and explain to you that a connections round, a series of four pictures are going to appear. Listen carefully, because you're going to have to do this in a second. Four pictures are going to appear, and you have to give the connection between the pictures. And the sooner you get it, the more points you'd get. Well, you're not actually going to get any points, but on the real show, you'd get more points. Um, So if you answer correctly after only two pictures, then you do better than if you answer correctly after all four. Okay? On the show, there's a time limit of 40 seconds. We might go a little bit quicker than that. And on the show, people request the next picture when they're ready. I'm just going to give it to you. And I trust you to be honest, all right? So, see how quickly you can guess what the connection is between these four things. I'm not going to say what they are. I might do it a second time round. So, it's the first one. I'll give you... That's a date, okay? Just in case you're struggling with that one. It's not a bit obscure, isn't it? Oh, don't say, because other people haven't got it yet. They're not as clever as you. So, keep it in your head. All right, next one. Can't see many pennies dropping. Next one. Did Margaret just get it? Oh. And the last one. Okay. Just a quick show of hands, don't say anything, but who thinks they've got it? Wow. Okay, only my wife who's seen the answers already. All right, I'll do it again, I'll tell you what they are. Right, first one is a date. Second one is a Word document, Microsoft Word document. 
Third one is some money. Yeah, okay, yeah, we're getting it. And the fourth one is a goal. Okay, what's the connection? Save, yeah, they're things that we save. It's good, isn't it? The real, the real quiz isn't as fun as this. But things that we save. Okay, put your hands up if you got it after one. No, you didn't. Did you? Yeah. Okay, hands up if you got it after two. Oh, okay, two as well. Three. <laughs> Excellent. That's good. Four. Okay, you're right, you didn't get it. Fine. Well, we'll move on. <laughs> what the connection, if you didn't get it, is there's things that we save, four different things we save, okay? And there is a point to this. The point is the different ways we use the word save. So you save a date. We keep a date free for something, perhaps something important. We save a computer file. You want to keep your work so that you don't lose all that time you've spent typing things in. We save money, and uh, we might spend less of it to save money. Or if we've got enough, we might store some up to save money, keep it for the future. Or we save a football goal. We keep the ball from going inside the net. Now, in that video that we just had, a reading from the New Testament part of the Bible... Called, uh, one, of the, one of the reasons was from, from Matthew's Gospel, which is eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection in the New Testament parts of the Bible. And we saw these words in Matthew chapter, tw- chapter 1. You must give him the name Jesus. That is because he will save his people from their sins. Names are important in the Bible. Today we call people all sorts of names. At the risk of offending anyone here, I'm sorry if this is your name or your child's name, but we call people names like Diesel and... I'm not going to carry on actually in case I offend someone. But we call people all sorts of names that don't really mean anything. But in the Bible, your name meant something. It was important. So Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua. And Joshua means... Yahweh saves. Yahweh is the name of God in the Old Testament part of the Bible. It means that he saves. He's a God who saves. Saves not in the sense of keeping a date free or keeping your work where it is on the computer or storing your money up for the future. No, he saves in the Bible sense of rescue, of rescue, of delivering from enemies, delivering from danger. I haven't seen the last Hobbit movie yet, nor have I read the book, but I'm fairly sure there's probably going to be a big battle in it, and probably going to be some kind of king-type figure who comes and saves his people in the battle, who leads them to victory. That's more like the sense of save that we're reading in the Bible here. This was the case for another Joshua, Joshua in the Old Testament part of the Bible, you might have looked at that. He was someone who God used to save his people, to deliver them from their enemies, to rescue them. But what does Jesus save his people from? What does Jesus need to save his people from? What is our enemy? What is their battle? What is the battle that we're facing? You must give him the name Jesus. That is because he will save his people from their sins. Sins is our rebellion against God, our rejection of him. Yes, it has to do with some of the naughty things we do, but it's not just the naughty things we do. It's our hearts. We turn against God and we choose to go our own way. We don't want him. We want nothing to do with him. And Jesus has come to save us from that. He's saying this is our enemy. We need rescuing from our sin. We need delivering from it. We need rescuing from the guilt of our sin 
because we're guilty before God and we need rescuing from the power of our sin. We need Jesus to come and save us so that we can change, so that we can live new lives for him and with him. Well, how does he do that? He does that by his death and by his resurrection. In his death and resurrection, the guilt of sin is taken away. He pays the price. He takes the punishment. We can be free and forgiven and know the love of God our Father. And in his death and resurrection, he defeats the power of sin. He defeats all our enemies and wins victory for us. The relevance of Christmas is simple. We need rescuing from our sin, from its guilt and its power. And at the birth of Jesus, he's the one who came to do that. The Jesus who birthed we celebrate at Christmas is the only one who can do that. He's the only one who can rescue. Angela, Leah, Sarah and Martin are going to come and lead us in prayer now as we respond.